0: Welcome to the Global Health Insights podcast, where personal stories make an impact globally. Together, we'll discover the human story behind our global health heroes and their international partners. We're here to understand their motivation and discuss the future of global health. I'm Dr. Sharon Chikijan, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale, and it's my pleasure to have you join us. In today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by Nathaniel Raymond, a leader in the field of humanitarian research. Nathaniel currently serves as the executive director of the Humanitarian Research Lab and lectures at the Department of Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases. His journey through the realms of global health and humanitarian effort has been nothing short of remarkable. Nathaniel's work has taken him to the front lines of humanitarian crises. He's witnessed firsthand the challenges and complexities faced by vulnerable populations. He's also been at the forefront of initiatives in technology and human security, harnessing the power of information technologies to address critical global issues. Join us for an insightful discussion that explores the intricate connections between health, human rights, and technology. Nathaniel, you're a kid from Brimfield, right down the road.
1: That's correct
0: your parents are antiquers.
1: Both my parents were antiques dealers, yeah.
0: How did you get to this point where you are flying around the world, hunkered down, researching some of the most dangerous issues going on?
1: Uh, Well, it really does start with my mom. Uh, My mom uh, went back to school at Clark University, uh, including in the geography department at Clark uh, in her late 30s, early 40s. And so when I was a a kid. I had a single mom who was getting a PhD in risk analysis and doing geospatial uh, analysis, including of Chernobyl. So she worked on the Chernobyl study in 1986, 87. And so I was, you know, playing, doing my homework, and playing with my trucks um, on the floor at the Goddard Library at Clark, while people around me, including my mom, were using things like ArcGIS and geospatial. Um, uh, mapping technologies in the 80s, and so that was that was the milieu I, I grew up in. And My mom ended up at Harvard School of Public Health and uh, being a professor in um, teaching epidemiology, and uh, uh, worked at the Silent Spring Institute and Audubon Society. And so uh, for for me, I I grew up in the context of using geospatial methods for health, public health reasons and epidemiology. And I got that from my mom.
0: So you really, you watched her. Did you help her? Did you work together? Uh,
1: She really involved me. I mean, she uh, made everything she was doing participatory. And so uh, it, it was just, you know, the family business. I think that's the best way to put it. I'm in the family business.
0: It's kind of a weird family business. It's
1: a very weird family business. Yeah.
0: Tell us a little bit about your methodology. How do you go about doing what you do?
1: So uh, the methodology really came together because of, of all people, George Clooney and (laughs) Doug Ross from ER. Uh, In 2010, I was at Physicians for Human Rights, and I got a call in October of 2010 from George Clooney's people that they had read a memo I had written for Google five years ago <laughs> at that point. So in 2005, I'd written a memo after Hurricane Katrina at the request of a friend who is an engineer at Google about how Google technologies, the data they were already collecting, could have helped improve response to uh, underserved populations, particularly African-American populations in Biloxi, Mississippi. And I wrote this uh, memo, and it was called Bat Signal, <laughs> and it was really about... How do we uh, make what I call digitally invisible populations more visible? And you have to understand this is now nine, almost 19 years ago. And so the technology that's now common was just in its infancy then. And so uh, I gave it to Google. Google didn't do anything with it. And it ended up through a colleague of mine in the hands of George Clooney, who at that point in the fall of 2010 had just been in the uh, contested aBA region between – Sudan and what was about to become the newest country in the world, South Sudan. And so he said, "Uh, can you build that? What's in this memo? Can you build it for me to monitor the secession of South Sudan from Sudan? And I said, yes. And so I got a check from George Clooney. And I walked over to Harvard and I said, I need to buy a lab. (laughs) And and so I I literally at one point had a check um, from... It was from a fund from George Clooney, Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, and Don Cheadle. And and the, the cast of Ocean's Eleven paid for my first lab.
0: Why, why were they interested? How did uh, he that even cross his desk? When
1: he was in uh, Abyeh, this region between now Sudan and South Sudan, he was— the story he has told on national television is that he was laying on the ground with his friend and colleague John Prendergast of the Enough Project and they were looking up at the stars and George Clooney said how is it that i'm followed by paparazzi and there's no paparazzi for people committing genocide and they they started talking about how do we develop paparazzi for people who commit mass atrocities. And then they said, satellites. <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, when he got the memo, it was an answer to the question of how would you integrate commercial satellite data with ground data to develop insights about threats to populations, movements of populations. And so we an- we answered his research question. <laughs> and, and so that's how Satellite Sentinel Project started. And that was really the... The first time, and and now 13 years ago plus, the first time that information communication technologies based on the access to, and I'm going to use some terms here that I'll explain, to um, proactively tasked commercial satellites had been available. Uh, The dawn of the commercial satellite age was only really between 2003 and 2006, and the Clinton administration had removed— barriers to using what had once been only military intelligence technologies for commercial purposes, but it took years to get those payloads up in orbiting. And it was by 2010 that there was now the ability to tell satellites where to go um, on a com- in a commercial space and to be able to get that data and use it publicly. And so it, it was, we were using a level of commercial satellite imagery on satellite sentinel that had never been used by civil society the the estimated cost in gift in kind of what we consumed in terms of satellite imagery was over 16 million dollars very expensive fuel <laughs> and very hard to get but if you could get it we could not only document attacks on civilians in real time this is the big thing we could predict them
0: how do you predict them
1: So we predicted the attack on Abye several weeks before it happened. And in that case, it was roads. And so in that area of East Africa where um, I've I've spent a lot of time, um, there are two types of (laughs) roads. Roads that are all weather and can uh, be driven on in the rainy season and roads that can't. And at that point, the rainy season was approaching. And in that area of Abyeh, there were very few roads that were Um, tank-capable. We thought the Sudan Armed Forces were going to attack Sudan People's Liberation Army forces that were in Abyeh and had dug in in foxholes that we could see from space, protecting specific villages. And in February, January, February, those villages started to catch on fire. And what was happening is a... Pastoralist nomadic group called the Miseria, who was working with the SAF, um, that r- walk their cows through that area. We're starting to set. We call them burners when we see them from space. Starting to set tukuls, which are these huts, mud and thatch huts, um, on fire, and um, and so we were able to detect those fires using data from NASA. Um, called VIRS, um, basically thermal radar. We could see the fires and we could then see them in very high-resolution imagery. And there was a pattern to where those villages were. And as we looked north of those villages, we saw behind the miseria, um, who didn't have things like big trucks, we saw roads being built. (laughs) And those roads, in an area where there was no oil production, were big enough to run a T-55 tank on. And then we followed the roads. (laughs) We sent the satellites north, and we found, in one case, at a divisional SAF base called Mughalad, way the heck up there, suddenly tanks were starting to gather, big tanks. And they were bringing in MI-24 helicopters, and they were reinforcing the apron. Basically, apron is a fancy term for the landing area for helicopters, with, and they were bearing fuel tanks. And that was really important because it suggested they were preparing for high-tempo air attack operations. And so we could see the forces begin to encircle Abyeh in a crescent. And in front of that crescent, the villages that were basically between the SAF, Sudan Armed Forces, and the SPLA um, were being burned. And we could see they were preparing the battlefield. And so our prediction, based on the force disposition, was that they were going to attack as soon as the rains started, which would have been smart. And so the rains were slated to start in May. And so we gave the warning in about April, four to five weeks out. We said they have the capability. They're building the logistics. They have set the table in terms of those village raisings to create a space between them and the other force that will allow them surprise. And then we, we could see that they had positioned forward forces on either of the bridges they needed to cross. And that for us was the sign that they, and they had flanked them from the south. And so we, we said, as soon as the rains come, they're going to attack under cloud cover. And the rains came. And I was at my friend's wedding um, on Memorial Day weekend, 2011. And I was driving out to the wedding and the call came came in. Abier is on fire, and as soon as the rain started and the cloud cover was high, they attacked at night from three directions—the three directions we had seen—with um, air cover. Uh, now, the good news in this case is we had warned. Um, as soon as there was initial attack, the civilians ran across the bridge that separated over this one river. Abyeh from uh, what was about to become South Sudan, and the majority made it out. There was—it's important to know there was a U.N. force there in Abyeh that w- basically got stuck as the Sudanese armed forces attacked. And so once they the civilians crossed the bridge, the SAF blew it up, and we could see them detonate the bridge from space. And we would look, and there was gatherings of dots under trees— to the south. Do you know what that was? Sheep. People hiding in the shade. And so, we were seeing the displacement.
0: You said you you warned. Who do you warn in these instances?
1: Well, this is really important. In that case, we were warning the world. Going forward, learning the lessons, and there was a lot of lessons in Satellite Sentinel. I'm still learning lessons from Satellite Sentinel 13 years later. Uh, we, we made all our reports public then. Uh, and we don't do that now. And now um, th- there are times that we, we have made uh, information public, but there's times now we, we keep information um, limited. And so in specific instances, you know, it, in the case of Sudan in August, in the recent violence, um, I went and uh, spoke to the U.N. Security Council. And uh, so that would be... Uh, I brought warning information to the UN Security Council in August related to attacks that we thought were possible, some of which um, have unfolded. Uh, and so that was that's an example of information that we don't put on the internet, but we provide to people who may be able to do something with it. People say all the time, oh, you do intelligence. Um, well, uh, what does that mean? Um, At its core, this information is about decision support, supporting decisions of humanitarian responders, of governments, of those who can respond to events. But it's also, that's the prospective element. The retrospective element, a lot of what we do is accountability for things that have already happened. So our work in Ukraine now with Conflict Observatory with the U.S. Department of State is focused squarely on accountability for past crimes. And so when you're trying to warn, it's a different set of methods and ethical and operational considerations than when you're trying to um, put bad guys in jail.
0: So this was kind of a pioneering couple of weeks for you. I think um, the ICC actually used some of your data, uh, some of your intelligence to actually go after people. Can you tell us a little bit about really the first time that this has been used well at the level of the icc
1: yeah i it, so the it, it's the, the, we could do a whole podcast just on the tr- trying to sort of document the recent history of international tribunal admissibility <laughs> of <laughs> satellite imagery of um of internet and o- open source uh commercial information in war crimes prosecutions um for, for us, the big breakthrough was in February uh, and March of last year, of 2023, the International Criminal Court indicted Vladimir Putin and Maria lavova Bolova, say that three times fast, the uh, Child uh, Rights Commissioner, um, ironically named, of, um, uh, of the Russian Federation for the uh, illegal... Uh, deportation and transfer of Ukrainian children. Uh, They indicted in March on St. Patrick's Day, uh, Mm -hmm. and they indicted one month after Valentine's Day when we (laughs) released uh, our report on uh, Russia's abduction of Ukrainian children. And uh, so we've transferred that information directly, the underlying data, to the ICC at the request of the ICC, and it's the first time that an American entity has been officially, to my knowledge, has been officially um, permitted by the United States government to cooperate with the ICC. So we have a cooperation agreement with the International Criminal Court on Ukraine, and we have uh, already uh, cooperated on uh, the investigation into the missing children.
0: Do you see things that you had said before, these are mostly military applications. The satellites were looked at for military purposes. Historically. Do, you, historically. do you see things that they don't look for or that they don't see? Or do they know everything that you know?
1: <laughs> Another topic for a podcast. Uh, we, uh, The way I try to explain it is that sometimes we are looking at the same things as militaries and intelligence services for the same purposes, to understand where a force is where an armed group is and what they're doing. Sometimes we are looking at the same things for different purposes. Uh, In their case, uh, they think about targeting. Um, We think about uh, who lives outside of that gun site. Uh, We think about civilians. Uh, And uh, our focus is civilian protection and the human security uh, and the safety of populations. And so we may be looking at the same data as a government, um, but to use it for purposes of how do we uh, uh, increase assistance to a population, reduce their vulnerability, um, understand their public health status. And they may not be uh, using that data for the same purpose. They often aren't. Um, Sometimes we're looking at entirely different data (laughs) for entirely different reasons. And in the case of the uh, children's investigation in Russia, there was some imagery involved, but it was mostly selfies. <laughs> and so when we realized that we were doing the children's investigation in the summer of 2022, initially when we we talked with state and we said we're gonna do this and and they're like, you should do this." <laughs> um, uh, I, I was like, oh, God, how are we going to do it? Because looking for kids, missing kids, is a lot harder than looking for tanks in Africa. <laughs> I can I can tell you that. And and so we in the summer of 2022, we were like, okay, we, we're going to do this, but how are we going to do this? And the breakthrough really happened when we started to see Russian officials doing often doing thumbs up. Um, uh, with groups of children who are being transferred, often by bus, um, to specific um, uh, camps, summer camps. And it was those selfies that gave us the uh, the way into the investigation And beca- for a variety of reasons. One, sometimes those pictures had metadata attached to them, so they were giving us their latitude and longitude. <laughs> and once we did that, we could build a map. Uh, also, that they were giving us the faces of the children. And so we were able to start IDing, in some cases, um, large groups of kids from specific places, but also specific children in some cases. They start, and in these photos, they were also giving us um, what we call TTP <laughs> their tactics, techniques, and procedures. So, uh, were they using coach buses? <laughs> What make and model of those coach buses were they? How were they parked? Um, What were the uh, buildings that the kids were standing near? Could we geolocate those buildings? Could once we geolocated those buildings, this is where imagery played a a minor but critical supporting role. Can we start to map those facilities and get what's called POL, pattern of life? And in the case of one camp called Teddy Bear, that's its actual name teddy bear camp, um, there was a swimming pool and we could see the umbrellas from space going up and down in the middle of the day because it was hot. (laughs) And so like someone's using the pool. (laughs) And then we could begin to pick out throughout the facility um, certain what we call tells that suggest activities. And uh, that was the way in. And so in, in, in this scenario, we were looking at data that maybe no one else was looking at, <laughs> and we started to, to do it at scale. And so the, the facilities we're talking about here in terms of the camp facilities, not all the kids are at camps, actually. Many of them are not at camps, but those camp facilities stretch over 3,500 miles <laughs> from Crimea on the Black Sea to the Eastern Pacific in Magadan, of uh, which is closer to Alaska in Japan than it is to Moscow or Kiev, And so uh, that, uh, and camps in Siberia as well. And so we, we, that scale, to work at that scale, you have to be doing two things at once with data. You have to be able to capture on a very micro level, and you have to be able to see on a macro level, you have to have these bifocals on to see the whole organism <laughs> at the same time, and with data. And especially with people who are trying to hide from you.
0: <laughs> are they trying to hide? It sounds like there's just so much data out there, you just have to look.
1: On one hand, they are trying to promote what they are doing, uh, in many cases, for a, a Russian domestic audience, politically, as propaganda. Uh, on the other hand, they are trying to conceal Uh, certain specific logistical things they are doing, where the kids are when, Um, uh, where um, the kids move um, from, for those, not all of them, but um, we're trying to ascertain this number, many are moved into adoption. And so that represents also a logistical pipeline. And Russia does not want us to know exactly how that logistical pipeline functions. But that is that's our fundamental mission.
0: How many kids are out there in this in this pipeline in these camps?
1: Unfortunately, you ask really good questions. Um, <laughs> the the so uh, on on the children's issue, there's really four groups of kids when we talk about the missing Ukrainian children. We're talking about four cohorts. So, group one are what we call camp kids. Uh, they're primarily from Donetsk in Luhansk and the occupied east of the country, and uh, Russia's occupied east. And they um, have gone to camps, some of them have returned, um, for indoctrination, for what's called russification, where they're not allowed to speak Ukrainian, they're given Russian patriotic uh, education, in some cases they're given military training, which we've documented and firearms, and uh, military vehicle operation. Uh, about, by our calculation, at least 10% of those kids have gone on to fostering or adoption programs. So th- those are the camp kids. And uh, and often those facilities were um, from the pioneer program under Stalin going all the way back to the Soviet period. And so like ARTEC in Crimea is a Stalin built children's camp. Uh, and then the second group um, are those that we we call, uh, the Russians call the evacuees, uh, and we can call them abductees, which are children that were taken from outside Donetsk and Luhansk in uh, occupied areas uh, of during the initial invasion uh, in February 2022, uh, Kharkiv, Mariupol, Chernaiv, Zaporizhia, and those children were in Ukrainian state institutional homes and were taken by Russia into Russia, which is a violation of the Geneva Convention, amongst other things. (laughs) And so that group are, are the ones that we are most focused on now because they make up, by our knowledge, the majority of those who are in the adoption pipeline. The third and fourth groups are the ones we know least about. And the, the one one group, the third, is we call them filtration kids, which were children separated from their parents after the fall of Mariupol, uh, primarily uh, in camps, internment camps in Donetsk, where the, the families had to go to be registered by Russia to determine if they were a national security threat. And we know in those camps, we don't know how many children were taken from their parents in those camps. The fourth group are what we call battlefield kids, which are children that were and, and, and may continue to be captured in the course of combat between Ukraine and Russia by Russia's combat forces. And, uh, and so we know that between at least six to 10,000 children have been in that camp kid group. The um, Ukrainian government uh, has released a number of about 19,000 that we think largely are children that were in the institutional setting, those evacuees or abductees. Uh, We think our number is distinct from theirs. And so we're talking approximately at least as many as 30,000. But we don't have denominators (laughs) for three and four. We, we, We don't know what we don't know. And so the real challenge now, this is arguably the largest missing persons case since World War II (laughs) and their kids. And so we're talking at a minimum 10 times the size of those who went missing on (laughs) 9-11. And so just uh, welcome to the nightmare here, which is that it took 18, conservatively 18 to 20 years to close 9-11 when we're doing a missing persons investigation on 10, 20 square acres (laughs) in downtown Manhattan with the most advanced law enforcement DNA identification capacity in the world on one park-like area, smaller than Central Park, for 3,000 people. Okay, now find me at least 10 times that, (laughs) probably maybe 50 times that. And and they're alive. (laughs) They're over 3,500 miles in area (laughs) across Russia. And they're growing. And they're getting bigger.
0: To stay updated on the latest, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you enjoy what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your support means the world to us.